Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to another lovely episode of uh, Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. How you guys doing out there? Al's with me. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. And today we have, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so Al, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Mr. Henrik Oud, how is that? Yeah, it's pretty good. Oud, Oud. Pretty good. Oud, Oud. Oud. Yeah. Oud. Sweet. Now, he's uh, a guy I'm sure most of you have heard of. And if you haven't, then I know that you've heard his work and just didn't realize that you've heard his work because he's been in the game since at least the uh, Demon War Gear Death Call Armageddon days. But uh, you would known him from working with bands like Architects, Bring Me the Horizon, At the Gates, I Killed the Prom Queen, Hammerfall. I mean, list goes on. Came up through Studio Fredman. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and which is one of the most legendary metal studios of all time. It's, you know, I know that when I was learning production, Studio Fredman was, you know, there was Colin Richardson, there was Andy Sneap, and there was Frederick Nordstrom at Studio Fredman, <laughs> and those were the uh, those were like the three gods. So <laughs> to come up, I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of. There were other guys that were also amazing, but I feel like the whole that was the holy trinity in metal in like the early two thousands, and to come up through one of those seems pretty amazing. So thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for doing Nail the Mix. Uh, Henrik is coming on this month for Nail the Mix doing Architects, a song called Gone with the Wind. And uh, we'll talk about that some and also just want to hear a little bit about your story. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, inviting me to this show. Yeah, so I um, I grew up listening to Guns N' Roses and... Iron Maiden and Metallica nice. and stuff, but uh, it never got much more metal than that. So, how did you end up at a place like Fredman, where <laughs> it's way more over the top than that kind of stuff? Actually, it was by chance. Like, I did some um, audio engineering school, and I needed a place to do my internship for five weeks, and. I called like every studio in Gothenburg with a phone phone book, <laughs> and uh, hold on a second. Hold on, let me uh, just explain what a phone book is for people <laughs> that are <laughs> that are like under twenty five years old. It's a book that has phone numbers in it. They used to exist. <laughs> so, yep. all right, so go on. You called every studio from the phone book. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and then I called Studio Fredman and. Uh, Fred asked me if I was like, uh, are you good at Pro Tools? And uh, I lied and said I was the king of Pro Tools. 
so he said, okay, you can come, come here then for five weeks. And actually, when I when I got there, it was they just started the uh, drums for Death Cult Armageddon. So that was my first uh, session to do there, uh, like to learn. Wait, so so, but you didn't know how to use Pro Tools? No, I was using Cubase or Nuendo at the time. And uh, okay, so you had I, some I knew experience. some from from school, but I I used Cubase a lot then, but. Uh, I was watch, watching him, what what he did, and picked it up pretty fast. Did he immediately let you work on the demo stuff? Yeah, pretty, pretty much straight on, because uh, he needed someone to edit kick drums, which was me, MIDI, and um, he put me on that work. And I moved just the kick drums, not the whole drum kit like you you do a lot today, but uh, just moved the kick drums to the to the rest of the... Drum kit. There's a lot of kick drums on that record. A lot of kick drums. So I think I sat there for a week and just moved it. But it was fun <laughs> for a bit. That's a pretty that's a pretty big record to have as your first record. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I, I've done. Uh, I bought myself uh, some studio gear before that and recorded some local bands and stuff like that. But that was like the first metal production I was ever involved with. So was it a huge I don't know it had to be a huge huge difference going from working with local bands suddenly being <laughs> on a big Demo Borgir record that has like an orchestra and you know is one of the biggest bands in metal Yeah it was mental like and at the time I was I was more into radiohead music and listened to a Swedish band called Kent and more pop rock indie thing so it's like hard to pick up what was going on in the music i mean when you're not adjusted to listening to metal i think you you don't understand really what you're what's coming at you from the speakers and but uh, i think i picked it up fast and uh, starting starting to love it and uh, so he initially told you to come in for five weeks yeah that's that's how long the intern thing from, from the school was because i know of a few other people who got the five-week internship who didn't stay so what what happened after that how did you end up staying there um so i went back and finished at the school and then uh, went back to my normal job as a forklift driver at a storage and i was so tired of of that kind of work and it's like all i th- thought about was was going back into music so i one day my boss came out and uh, had some complaints at me and i just told him i i will quit this <laughs> i'll quit today <laughs> and uh, then i left and went to fred's place again and asked him if he could have any use for me for um, working for free and uh, i think he liked liked what i did uh, during the five weeks there so he said i could stay and uh, so i stayed stayed for a year and worked um, for free basically and uh, so wait what else did you do in the five weeks because you said you did kick drums for one week what other stuff did you do some bass recording and uh, guitars and stuff like uh, it was pretty good with that freddy like put people on in work straight away like trust so it was really sink or swim 
Like you really got the chance to prove yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or to to either prove that you know what you're doing or prove that you suck really, really quickly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so he already knew that you could do various things when you came back. He knew that you could you could record a band or you could edit. Yeah, and that you could hang around with a band for a long period of time and still get along fine as people, which is very important. Absolutely. So you went back and you offered to work for free for like a year. How did you live? Uh, back back then I was staying at my mom and dad's place, so it was pretty simple. They helped me out with, with all that. Uh, <laughs> it was very cool. Yeah, so I worked there, but then like thought about because uh, he couldn't hire me then because he had another guy working for him called Patrick and um, so I decided to go to a university for for audio engineering so after a year I started a second school for that and um, and um, yeah stayed there for two years and then worked in the summers for for Fred recording bands and stuff and um, how did you eventually get hired it was um, we were on a show with Fred's band, Dream Evil, and um, his drummer in the band worked for him. That was Patrick. And um, on a show in Stockholm, he said, like, oh, I'm going to quit my work with you and going to start to do something else. And then he, since I've been there for, for a long time, he asked me, do you want a job? And uh, yes. <laughs> That was like happiest day of my life. So he he was retiring from production. Yeah, exactly. He, he's an awesome drummer and like really good uh, at production and stuff. But he wasn't too much into mixing and stuff at the time. I think so. He wanted to quit. We're talking about Fred, right? No, no, Patrick, the drummer. Oh, oh, sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you said that Fred wanted to quit production. No, no, no. Okay. Oh, okay. So he was in a band with his own assistant. Yeah, Patrick. Exactly. Got it. So Patrick just wanted out. Yeah, and I I took his job since uh, I worked there for a long time. How many years would you say elapsed between the first internship with Dimu Borgir to the time that Patrick decided to leave? I think he left in 2007, so four years. But I mean, I I was going to school at uh, between that too. But but it just goes to show that when you try to make a a situation and happen for yourself in the music industry, like build a relationship that will end up employing you or something. Yeah. Th- these are things that can take years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just urge people who are interning or trying to get assistant jobs or work under big producers to, to be patient and give it time because, you know, in my story as well, when I got the gig at Audio Hammer, I got the gig at Audio Hammer after knowing them for five years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't overnight. It took a long time. It took a long time of recording there and then leaving and then coming back and helping with some stuff and then going and touring and coming back and back and forth. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of, a lot of kids that are going for work positions in the industry are trying to do things a little too quickly at times. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I think this is a good, good example that it just, it takes time and proving yourself over and over and over again. 
Yeah. So that people feel comfortable with you. Yeah, I think that I, I learned so much in that year I was working there for free. I mean, it was a lot of great bands too. And uh, yeah, Fred left me a lot of work and like came in and o- oversaw it the other day or something. And it was good, good experience. What bands did you work on during that year? I, I don't really remember, to be honest. It's so... It's all just a big yeah, blur. Yeah, it's all just a big blur. Uh, among one, uh, Fred's own band, but... Uh, well, I mean, there's always a ton of bands going through that studio. Mm-hmm. Joey, when you hear stories like this, what it, does it make you think that your own story is kind of, uh, I guess, like uh, an outlier? <laughs> yeah, I do think it's interesting because there's also a perspective of, like, when I was coming up, I remember listening to Dream, Dream Evil, and being yeah. like, this is huge. Like, I wonder what, you know, big producer did this or what big studio did that. And like, it's uh, it's interesting because now I feel like I'm friends with a lot of the people that I looked up to. And so mm. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. I think it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird for me, too, because like uh, back in 2004, while you were sitting there editing those drums, on the demo, or maybe a mm. year after that when it came out, I was sitting there wondering how the hell this record was even possible. Yeah, because it's so good, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> how it's even possible to make it sound that good. So um, I, I think it's uh, it kind of blows my mind to to get a start around such phenomenal productions. Yeah. But uh, so let's talk about Architects some, yeah. because uh, you're coming on to do Architects. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about Architects some? You've done two records with them, mm-hmm. Lost Forever, Lost Together, and yeah. All Our Gods Have Abandoned Us. Yeah. How did you come into contact with them? It was like um, like 2008, I, I worked with Bring Me The Horizon for the first time, did an album called Suicide Season, and then... Uh, Sam was doing some guest vocals there, so he came over to Sweden just to do that and party a bit. And uh, it's like I, I knew that because c- these two bands were good friends, and I don't think Architects really wanted to come to us because Bring Me the Horizon was doing the production at our, at our studio. So when they stopped, when Bring Me the Horizon stopped doing coming to us, uh, I went to a show <laughs> a show in Gothenburg with Architects and. Uh, I was pissed drunk, I think, and don't remember too much. And came in and talked to Tom and told him his guitar sound sucked so bad. <laughs> and uh, that, that's all I remember. But afterwards he said, like, uh, that really sold sold the gig, <laughs> hearing about how bad my guitar sound is. And uh, Really? Yeah, it's true. Was it an Architects show or were yeah, they yeah. on tour with Bring Me the Horizon? No, it was an Architects show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So you got drunk and told them their sound sucked and that got you hired. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I told him, especially your guitar sound <laughs> sucks so bad. And uh, that uh, got him really happy because he never, he never used to be happy with his guitar sound on anything. So he came here and said, like, okay, now show me how you, how you do it. <laughs> so th- after that, you were working on one of their records and... Yeah. Uh, what was the experience like working on that first record with them? It was fantastic. I mean, they're so good musicians and everyone is really a good person. So um, 
everything almost went too well. Like it sounded awesome, all the recordings. But then one day the kitchen flooded, and there's a Thai massage upstairs from the kitchen, and there was a lot of <laughs> shit coming raining down in our in, in our kitchen, and <laughs> got totally destroyed, water damaged. Oh no! And that that kind of put the lid on the recording, like. Everything was going too well. And uh, after that, we had to eat outside in a party tent that Fred put up. Uh-huh. And uh, oh, Wait, so how long <laughs> did it take to get that cleaned up? It took months and months. So oh. uh, so the rest of the recording, they had to sleep in the in the recording room and, and like cook. Since all of them are vegans too, it was a bit difficult to not be able to cook uh, your own food. So, yeah, we got a bit depressed after that, but still good good memories afterward. Dude, I remember one night when my band was on tour, like in 2007, and our singer was going crazy, and he grabbed a pipe. <laughs> he grabbed a pipe above the stage and started swinging from it, oh. and uh, the pipe broke, and it was a shit pipe. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he broke the ship pipe and it didn't just like it didn't just like come out of the ceiling it like came out of the ceiling at an angle uh-huh. to where it was pointing straight at the audience <laughs> and it just it just sprayed them in shit for like five minutes it was horrible <laughs> it's so so bad but so amazing at the same time uh, just one of those things that uh, we were never able to play there ever again hmm. after the ship pipe after the ship pipe incident. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of the best best uh, experiences I've ever had. Uh. I I just thought it was water at first. Yeah. Then because I got some on my arm, then I looked to my looked on my arm. And there's like brown liquid on it. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> So I can relate to how awful your your situation must have been. Yeah, but we, I think uh, <laughs> we we finished that album, the Lost Forever, Lost Together. When it's like they weren't really done with it, but I think they just wanted to go home. So uh, like <laughs> it's like they said, okay, we're flying home, and I was like, we're not done. We we have the mix and. Uh, Everything. There's still more takes to do, and it's like it went no, we're, we're we're done. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where were they sleeping? Uh, they slept in a recording room after the accident. So, so you ba- you guys all slept in this. You guys all slept in the recording room. Yeah. I mean, I I slept at my place, but <laughs> they slept at the recording room. <laughs> and uh, so uh. The, the next album they did, they rented a house. A big uh, house. So. <laughs> <laughs> no poop problems <laughs> Yeah, there. exactly. So, yeah, but it was a fun, fun recording. And they were, they were like really inspired to to do the best album they could ever do. And like, you know how it can feel like sometimes when, when the band does their fifth or sixth album and they're not really going for it. Uh, it's a lot of good energy doing this album yeah sometimes bands get to their fifth or sixth record and it's almost like a day job yeah autopilot yeah they've just done it so many times i know of one band i was around for their uh fifth album and one guitar player 
didn't pick up a guitar. He was at the studio for five weeks. <laughs> he didn't pick up a guitar the entire time. He just sat on a couch yeah. and looked at stocks. <laughs> checked, <laughs> wow. his, checked his stocks the entire time. He didn't... <laughs> in a really big band, too. It was like their fifth or sixth record. Yeah. He didn't pick, seriously didn't pick up a guitar once. Huh. So why not just stay home? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Joey, did you ever get situations like that at your place with uh, some super seasoned bands just being like, ah, whatever? <laughs> well, sometimes it's welcomed. Uh, yeah, in my position, that's true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, true. I'm glad. I'm glad you're not bothering me because you're not good at guitars or whatever it is. You know. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to, when the good guitar player is playing all the guitar parts, I guess. I guess that's the part I left out was that this guy that, uh, was checking his stocks all day wasn't the good guitar player anyways. Yeah. So. It's okay. So, well, it's, it's okay, but at the same time, it's just why even come to the studio? Yeah. That's the other thing. I guess I can speak more to that because like, uh. You know, when when the band comes, if if there's a guy who's gonna do all the guitars and like you know there's a, there's like a you know the, a person each person in the band kind of has a role to play in the recording process. If you're there and you're just taking up space, it's kind of detrimental to the recording because you you know somebody's got to take you somewhere when you need to go to the store and then you need food and like. Yeah. take up space and you talk when we don't you know you talk when we're trying to work you know all these things so yeah i i you know i like to do the records uh they don't always work out perfectly but when the the band comes in like little teams mm-hmm. i like I like when the, like the drummer and the guitar player come over for a while and then they go away and then the vocalist and the bass player comes over and stuff like that it works yeah. out pretty good yeah, yeah, well, that's exactly what what we did on the latest Architects album. They stayed in the house and like working on songs or cooking food or whatever. And they came in small teams of two, yeah. and yeah, it works out good. As opposed to having the whole band staying there the entire time. Yeah, I mean it's it can get very bore, boring to stay for five weeks in the studio and when you're not do, <laughs> doing much. I mean, if, if you're not recording. Yeah, well, think about it from a drummer's perspective, especially if you record the drums first. Mm-hmm. They record drums first for the first week, and then they're just hanging out for the next three or four weeks. Like, What are they going to do? And in my experience, what they end up doing is distracting everybody because they get so bored. They, uh, you know, invariably they start drinking more or partying more or just too much nervous energy and it definitely distracts mm. so that's one thing actually that i think that older bands are a lot better about is when you ask them to work in teams or to you know if we're doing drums first have just the guitarist main guitarist and the drummer come for the first week yeah and then just the the two guitar players for the next week you know mm-hmm. or whatever I feel like with older bands, it's a lot easier to request those sorts of things. With younger bands, it's a bit tougher. Yeah, exactly. They all want to be there the whole time. For us, like the most uh, bands comes from abroad and stay in the studio, sleeping there. So it's a bit hard sometimes. 
to get them in small smaller teams when they're here here the whole time. So, are you guys in a centrally located area? To where they can just walk to bars or walk to the grocery store? Not really. It's like it's not far from the center of Gothenburg, but it's uh, it's far enough to walk somewhere good. It's uh, like more an industrial area. So. So do they rent a car or? Yeah, some. Does that end up? Okay. Yeah, some do that or take the bus into town, something like that. So it doesn't end up being your job. No, exactly. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Man, I I hated it when that used to become my job. Driving people around? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because, you know, it, you drive somebody as a favor one day, then it becomes twice a day. Then uh. before you know it, you're the chauffeur. Uh. And uh, you're spending a good quarter of your day just driving people around instead of working. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, because, you know getting five people to coordinate their schedules one time i uh, recorded a band where they lived in the same state and they were like a few towns away a uh, 40 minute drive and they would barely get to the studio like <laughs> they would, what do you mean <laughs> like they would say we're coming and then hours go by we're coming and then hours go by our ride just picked us up hours go by Oh man, we're not gonna make it today. Like, <laughs> it's like okay. Well, I I could have done something cool today, but you kept me here waiting for you. <laughs> yeah. Was it a local band? I don't want to. I don't want to say who it was. So it was a well known band. Well known band. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, so yeah, you'd stay there all day because you'd be like, okay, they're gonna be here in thirty minutes. Yeah. It's like they just keep it going. You know. <laughs> So I, I guess it's good and good and bad to have people staying at the studio. But uh, it's like the good thing that we always done is like they can keep keep on working after we go home. If we show them how to track something, and they can work on some bass or something, and then check it and redo it the next day. <laughs> Do you have a special like tracking room just for the bands? Or would you let them just use your control room? Uh, they, they're using the whole studio. So Fred's always done like that. Even when you guys are gone? Yeah, yeah. So it's, wow. it's 24-7 if you want to work. That's a lot of trust. Yeah. That's scary, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that That's actually kind of scary. I'm kind of impressed. Just because of the idea that getting someone that doesn't know what they're doing on your system, mm. you know, they could possibly screw up the sessions. But I mean, there's always one guy in the band that knows some stuff and you can teach him something. And it's worse if they pour, spill the beer on the control surface or something. <laughs> Has that ever happened? No, not not so far. That's happened to me. Did? Yeah. I don't think he'll care, so I'll tell it, but Ben Bruce spilled a, a whole beer all over my uh, central station oh yeah Oof. and so i just made him order order one for me there was a really really big band on nuclear blast records recording at audio hammer once and uh it was during a guitar session the guitar player was up at the at the con not it's not a console it's one of those desks you know those desks that we all have now that have like all your racks uh-huh, yeah. right next right next to you. Yeah, the modern modern style recording desks. And uh, he was up there, and uh, he was holding a beer, 
and kind of stoned. And it was a full beer. And he was just talking and 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 talking, talking and talking and talking. And as he was talking, his beer just started to tip over more and more and more. He just kept on talking and talking. The beer was just pouring into a Chandler. <laughs> he poured his entire fucking no. beer into the Chandler. It was so bad. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah. Then he he blamed it on on uh, us because he said that the uh, that we had coffee up there, so okay. it's our fault. All right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the label paid for it though. All right. Yeah. No, he he literally poured like a full beer into the Chandler. <laughs> so I've never, you know, how some people are really, really weird about having drinks on gear. Mm. I have never actually seen a drink that was on gear get spilled into the gear, but I have seen somebody standing over a Chandler pour a beer into a Chandler. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, get frothy preamps, dude. It was a compressor too. It was it was an expensive piece of gear. Oh, it was a compressor? I believe so. <laughs> I think it was a Chandler compressor. Oh. I, I'm pretty sure, and it, it was definitely like one of the prize units in that in that rack. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you guys listening, this uh, and you have, you know, you look over to your right and you see that precious little piece of gear that you worked so hard to buy this happens (laughs) yeah it does happen i mean i'm trying to think i've never really had a band well actually i had a band destroy my uh my band lounge once they uh by accident or just oh i don't it didn't look too accidental to me (laughs) um it looked like alcohol induced like they, it seemed like they had just watched one of those Pantera vulgar videos uh, yeah. where <laughs> they destroyed a dressing room and they thought that they were rock stars and they destroyed the band lounge at my old house. <laughs> and like they left me a little shrine. The shrine was all this trash and my Xbox in the middle. And it was like all piled up in the corner. And like the beds were, the beds were at a weird angle. It was like they totally just fucked the whole room up. But I, I charged their manager fifteen hundred bucks for it, and he paid. So it was fine. I mean, they usually pay for this shit. Yeah, yeah. I've had, uh, I've had labels pay me for all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like uh, I think I said this on an, an early episode, but at this point we have a lot of episodes. So, but uh, yeah, there was a band that like. They they took a dump on the lawn, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I took a picture of it. And then uh, I was really mad because my landlord was really mad at me. <laughs> so I was really mad because I was like, "Man, this has nothing to do with me," you know. And so I took a picture of it and I just emailed it to the label. Like, <laughs> I was just like, "Your band did this in my yard," <laughs> and they sent me a check for five hundred bucks. Wow, really? Cool. Yeah. They were like, we're sorry. You didn't invoice them? Like the, you didn't send them a poop invoice? <laughs> no, because <laughs> they just paid me. I don't know. It happened very fast. It was just like, they were like, that's unacceptable. Here, you know, we're sending you a check Here's for $500. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Well, that works. And I think I gave that's- like half of it to the landlord. I was like, oh, they gave me $250. And I kept $250. 
Yeah, this is the poop fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you had? Have you have any stories like that with bands just doing fucked up shit at the studio? Yeah, there's a lot of. I guess there's a lot of stories, but not clean enough <laughs> to be told. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's been a lot of puking in the beds and this someone's jumping into the wall and destroying stuff. Which wall? <laughs> like the sleeping. There's some bunk beds and someone jumped into the wall and destroyed it and had to <laughs> rebuild the, the beds. Did they so, pay for it? No, nah, I don't think they paid for it. No. Bastards. Famous band. <laughs> of, of course. <laughs> it's always the famous. Yeah. The destruction seems to be always with those bands. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not true. You get a bit tour damage, I think, if you're out on a bus and can do whatever you want for yeah. most of the year. There's <laughs> no trash cans anywhere. And you think that the studio is just an extension of the tour bus? Yeah, exactly. Well, let, let's talk some more about the second Architects record, mm -hmm. um, because you're doing a track off that on Nail the Mix. Yeah. So you're, you're doing a track called Gone with the Wind, correct? Yep. And we chose it because it's got many different elements in it. Yeah. It's got cleans, it's got screams, it's got all kinds of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from like a mixing perspective. Yeah. Like what was challenging about it for you? So I think that that one was one of the hardest songs for me to mix because uh, I don't know why really, but I, I didn't think I got it to sound uh, good and... I think I did in the end, but uh, when I worked on it, uh, <laughs> I thought it was harder for some reason to get it to sound good. Maybe the guitars w were a bit faster and stuff like that in the start, and then it goes down to this more mellow parts and was more more of a struggle for me to mix it. Have you noticed that there's always songs on records that... Uh some of them just mix themselves very easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then others are just hard for some reason. Yeah. It's like most of the time it has something to do with the arrangement, I think. If if it's if it's a good arrangement, it will mix itself and and um, for this song I think it's a good arrangement, but uh, it's just harder for some reason to get the drums to sound good in the more soft parts. I thought I was struggling with the kick drum to make it less clicky in, in those parts and stuff like that. It ended up being a pretty big song though, so it seems like you did okay. Yeah, it's it's always like that when I when I mix something. It's a like a roller coaster for me. Uh, one minute I think um, I'm the king and stands up and like <laughs> hooray! And then the next one, uh, next day I'm um, I'm at the bottom. <laughs> Don't want to hear it again. It's like, it goes up and down like that for me. Well, how long does it normally take you to mix a record? It's normally uh, five days. Not with Architects 1. I was a bit longer. I carried on and did some, we did some mix changes. So it's like, that's what I really enjoy now. When I started my own company, I can take as long time as I want on a mix because... I have a hard time to to stop the mix until I'm happy or until a certain point. And do you do your own mix setup? Like, do you lay your own samples and do all that stuff, or do you have a, yeah. an assistant help you? 
No, I do all the stuff, basically. Someone might check the triggers, like if we have an intern or something. Check so all the samples play correctly and stuff like that. But other than that, I, I do all the stuff. And you can still do a record in five days, even with doing all that stuff? Yeah, like I normally spend um, one or two days on the basic sound, on the first sound, on the first song. And then uh, move on to to the next one and then adjust some stuff when you hear hear it in perspective on a different song. And then all, all the week long I tend to adjust, adjust the songs for the changes I make. But uh, yeah, I, I spent longer time on the Architects album than five days, but it's usually what we book in for. Which I, I think it's a little, little too, too few days. But uh, five days is pretty quick. Yeah. So, what do you consider taking a long time? Like an architect, how long did that take? Um, I don't know. I, I maybe done it in ten days, then something like that. So, like a normal person's band. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I think mixers these days are getting faster mm. because I remember back in like mid-2000s, mixers would take three or four weeks on a mix. Yeah. Nowadays, people are doing them in like five days. Everything's so much faster now. Mm. Like, how long did the mix take on Death Cult? Oh, I, I actually left before uh, my internship didn't last for three months, which it take to record that album, I think. So uh, I, I wasn't there for the mix. But um, I think it took a long time just to get the strings they they went to prague and recorded uh, the symphonic orchestra and uh, and they also mixed it in surround i remember so probably 14 days or something like that but that's still still that's pretty, still quick, pretty quick yeah i was about to say that's pretty quick for a record that's that complex yeah. joey what's your quickest mix or longest mix <laughs> i I might have something more interesting than my quickest mix. I've actually, uh, there was a song I was working on. It was like somewhere in the middle of an album where I'd, I had already mixed like six other songs on the same album. So at this point, it was kind of, I don't know, very easy to mix the songs. And uh, one of the songs, I opened it. I put everything into my template. I mix exactly like Billy Decker. So if anybody watched the Billy Decker nail mix, like that's that's me. I literally open a template, drag, drag the uh, consolidated audio into the into the slots, and uh, that's what I did with this song. Opened it, loaded my template, dragged this, and hit play. Swear to God, it was it was done. Like <laughs> no tweaks, just print it and send it to the band, and they approved it. So there was one song. I mean, I guess you could say that was my quickest one. Yeah. I don't know how long it took. Maybe ten minutes. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty quick. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I spent a ton of time on the first six songs to get to that point. So, mm, yeah, I mean, and building a build, the thing about building a template like the one that Billy Decker uses or your templates is they're not just your average everyday templates. I mean, these are templates that have been put together over years yeah, yeah they yeah. they get refined and yeah yeah and they get tweaked and uh they're like 
really, really, really worked out. Like the temp, they're like I just want to let people know. So when they download my template or something, my routing template from my Creative Live or whatever, this is not the same kind of template. Like the Joey templates or the Decker templates are far more intricate than that. Yeah, and the other thing is that um, I kind of know if like I have different templates so I have like I don't know like 13 templates right and I know like the little quirkiness of each one so when I'm working on a project I'm kind of also thinking in the back of my head I'm like hmm I think this one kind of works with like template four or something like that right (laughs) yeah and so that will change what mics I use and like what I tell the drummer to do because I know so it's basically what I'm saying is it all works together you know, uh, it's, I'm thinking I, like, yeah, go ahead. So you, so you have a template when, when you record it too, not just for the mixing or like, yeah. And oh, they okay. work together. So it's, ah. I kind of know cool. if I'm like, well, this template usually kind of is bright on symbols. I might use like a darker mic just, mm-hmm. just as an example, just to kind of like speed, speeds everything up. Cause then when those symbols go into that template, that's one less, EQ move or one less like yeah problem that I have to solve. Yeah, we've been kind of starting from scratch on every recording and like just imported some headphones listening, but it's it's a bit stupid to be honest. It just takes time that you can spend on other stuff. Yeah, and then tweak like on the tweak, tweak it from the templates. Well, I think that there was a long time where people made fun of templates. Mm. And uh, so a lot of mixers were like, I don't work from a template or whatever. I'm not one of those template guys. Mm. But I, I think that that's small-minded because the template itself took a ton of skill to put together. Yeah. To put together a template that you just pop tracks into and something sounds incredible, mm. like 90% of the way there, incredible. That's not normal. Like, that's not like, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not that easy. Like, oh. it's people make it sound like it's easy to do. That's not easy. That's super difficult. For it to work across multiple bands and uh, still sound, like I said, 90% of the way there when you pull in the tracks. This is something that takes a ton of refinement. And, uh, the thing is that once you get it done, you save so much time. And I don't know about anybody else, but saving time to me is like the most amazing thing because, you know, that's all we've got in life is time. Huh. Why why spend it on dumb stuff? True. Have you considered doing that? Uh, I haven't for recording. Yeah, I haven't thought about it too much. But, I mean, for, for mixing, I obviously drag in like the reverbs and stuff that I want to use on almost everything and and stuff like that. Sometimes a guitar master bus that I know sounds good, I can tweak it from that. Stuff like that I use for for the mix. But uh, yeah, I have to look into it more for the recording too. Well, I find that with recording, at least having a routed template mm-hmm. that has like, all the DIs and all the guitars already grouped together, yeah. all that stuff already done. Yeah. It, you know, at the very least, that just makes life a lot faster. Yeah. You know, it, I feel like if it saves me two hours 
than over the course of over the course of a year. Uh-huh. You know, it ends up saving you a few days. Yeah. Maybe even a week. But you know, but that ends up being a week that a week of your life that you've got back. Mm. A week per year over the course of a few years ends up being a few months, a few months of solid time that you spent there making sessions where you could have just had it to, you know, walk the dog or, yeah. you know, do whatever you want. So I don't know. I think, I think it makes life better. So we've got some questions here from our audience for <laughs> you that I want to ask you. So here's one from Vinny. And he said, the drums on the last two architects records sound amazing. What microphones do you use and what do you personally think you do so different compared to a lot of engineers out there recording metal bands? Um, thanks a lot. Uh, I don't know if we do anything different, but uh, I can start with the mics that we use. It's a SM91 in the kick drum. Nice. And um, a Neumann U67 in front of the kick drum too, which distorts a bit and... Sounds sounds good. <laughs> like that. And uh, on the snare drum, it's uh, Sunken CU31, both on top and bottom. It's a small, handmade Japanese uh, condenser mic, um, which sounds, sounds pretty cool. Like a bit richer than a normal SM57. And um, for the toms, it's the Beta Shore Beta 56, I think they're called. Wow, I've never tried one of those. Yeah, uh, they, they sound sound or decent. And uh, overheads is uh, Neumann KM184. Which, uh, Classic. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, then it's some spare mic, like condenser mics on the China and Ride Symbol. Don't think we used the Hyatt on any of the two albums architects so that's that's basically it great much to it and um, and do you tune your own drums um, uh, sometimes like on this project with architects we had a guy coming in from Toma and tune them but uh, most of the time it's uh, me or Fred tuning but uh, yeah sometimes we we bring in in a tech guy and working with a drum tech is such a great thing. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome because you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's uh Yeah. <laughs> can you just tell him it sounds good, a little bit higher or something? <laughs> it just saves your ears, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Okay, Johan Lund said, man, I can't even pronounce this, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'll stay to the English part. Uh, the bass and guitar sounds so massive on the last two Architects album albums. What was the signal chain on both, and how did you approach them in a mix to make them sound that friggin' awesome? <laughs> Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It's like um, the amps is uh, an EVH amp, uh, and then like pre pre amp out on the backside, it goes into a, to a fifty one fifty, and they both go to different cabs like uh, the EVH has an angle cab two SM57s in front of it like the normal Fredman miking technique and then the 5150 goes to a Marshall with two mics in front of it and then they get blended and that's that's for one guitar and then quad track them so 
So that's a lot of microphones. Yeah, it is. But uh, on the latest one, we combine like all the microphone to to one track, I think. <laughs> Committed to it, and then there was uh, also a diesel diesel amp together with a Mesa Boogie with the same cabs and uh, those were guitar and three and four so and then in the mix it's uh, well I guess you you will see it eventually but uh, there's some C4 from Waves to take care of some low end to multiband compress some low end and uh, the low five plugin from Pro Tools own plugin adds a lot of uh, some distortion extra and uh, really wow yeah. hold on that's a really cool plugin that i don't think that many people know about no i don't think so either but uh, we used it for a long long time on like i use it on every project i do on guitars on guitars yeah interesting i have never seen it used on guitars before but it's got a good distortion on yeah, it yeah it's uh, I, i don't know it it boosts the volume a lot like where I have it as it boosts it's like 4 dB and I wish it had a like an output trim but it doesn't so as soon as you turn it up it sounds oh it's awesome but um, <laughs> it does something it compresses the guitar a bit like make them sound bigger and then it's like uh, some normal EQing some uh, uh, taking out some some bad frequencies with a narrow Q. So it doesn't sound like it's anything that crazy. No, it's... Uh, I mean, the amps sound so good uh, together by themselves. I don't really like the EVH by itself. It sounds uh, to me just thin and stuff, but together with a power amp from the 5150, it uh, gets really meaty and fat. I, I've never heard someone do that before. That sounds like a really cool idea. Yeah. I'm sure, it sounds incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. Did you used to not sum the mics on the way in? If we used to not sum the mix, the mics? Yeah, did you just start doing that recently? Uh, well, sometimes uh, it's like every other time. I think on the Lost Forever album, it, it, it's two tracks, one for each cab. So, and I, I think I panned them a bit different on that one. Like the angle cab is full 100% panned and the other one is 86% or something. So, I don't know. It's just uh, most of the time I, I, I do it into two tracks. That makes life a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah, because then you can tweak, set the levels between the guitars. Yeah. So, um, Question from Anthony Di Giacomo, which is, what's it like, or what was it like working for an absolute legend like Frederick Nordstrom, and what kinds of things did Frederick teach you that you still use today? I mean, uh, probably his approach, like uh, to mo most things, what I do today is, uh, it's probably from him, and then of course I refine them and want to do stuff my own way but uh, a lot of the stuff like recording guitars and stuff it's uh, learned from him by by watching what he does and um, the, the whole work approach I think with uh, from file handling to whatever it can be it's uh, stuff that he he did from the start and 
then of course you do it your own way. I mean, we've, we've been having arguments for 10 years about uh, I want to do manual fades <laughs> on guitars and stuff and cut all the silent in between the notes uh, manually and he wants to use strip silence and do automatic crossfades. So so you guys still fight about that one? Yeah, but now, now when I'm, <laughs> I'm a free man now, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> you, can do, you can do your manual fades. Yeah, but... Um, also, after getting, uh, I got a son like two years ago, and uh, congrats! Thanks. Make him edit your drums. Yeah, I will one day. <laughs> oh, he's not editing them already. <laughs> not yet. Just start them at six months. Yeah, <laughs> be laying samples by one year. But I, I guess that taught me how to, like, yeah, fuck it. I just strip silence and do automatic fades. And get more time with my kid. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, oh, so maybe he did. He was onto something with the strip silence. Yeah, yeah, maybe he was. But um, I'm, I'm still really. I'm, I'm doing most of the drum edits, like, and always enjoyed doing it. Uh, I think I'm one of the few guys that, <laughs> like, it's, it's like meditation for me to sit for five, five days and cutting drums. It's beautiful. You're an you're an angel, <laughs> <laughs> man. I I love people like you. Uh, there's I know like two other guys that love editing drums. It's like they're Zen or something. Yeah. They they really really just enjoy it. Uh, it's so, and so fulfilling. Like when you when <laughs> stuff gets better and like ah oh, this is fucking awesome. And I don't know. But uh, unless it's uh, a terrible drummer, then it's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. The, I recommend all producers find someone they know who loves editing drums. <laughs> well, because not everyone does. You know, it's kind of like yeah. also the same thing with uh, guitar teching. Mm -hmm. There are some guys who just naturally want to do that stuff. Um, they love building yeah. guitars or setting up guitars or messing with how guitars are put together. And there's some guys who don't give a shit about that, like me, for instance. Yeah, I don't and same it, here. Yeah, I couldn't care less. But it's always helped me to know guys who love that stuff because I can have them set up my guitars rather than me do a bad job. Yeah. Just give it to someone who loves it. So here's a question from Ivan Aguilar, which is, how do you choose where to put synths on your productions? I love the architect's post-production and every single synth on those songs are perfect. Ah. Well, those um, on the architect's case, it's uh, it's it's done from the from the pre-production already. Not that we don't record it again, but uh, but it, it's already there. And like most of the synths on that album is actually guitars through the Strymon pedal. And the timeline and big sky. Oh, I love the big sky yeah. pedal, man. So I, I mean, there's some synths, but I think most of what you hear, all the ambient stuff, is guitars just dreaming, <laughs> floating. So for anyone not familiar with the big sky, it's a modulating reverb pedal, mm. and it's a lot like the Valhalla Shimmer plugin. Yeah, but it's like a it's like a pedal version of Valhalla Shimmer. And, uh, you know, in some ways it sounds better because it's got that pedal reverb thing happening. But uh, 
lots of people can't confuse modulated reverbs or even modulated delays with synths. You know, when you put them on guitars, they sound like strings at times. Mm. They sound like dreamy, awesome sounds. So, I mean, with a band like Architects, most of the music is done and even like 98% of the IDs for for the ambient stuff is is all Tom doing what he does. And um, so it's more more of making everything sound good when working with Architects, for example, and putting in input where it's needed. So they're a band that really knows what they want. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's probably the easiest band I've ever worked with for, for that reason. <laughs> and like everyone knows the parts and playing is awesome. So Anthony Potenza is wondering, the low end on both LFLT and All Our Gods is absolutely insane. How did you get everything to fit together so tight, sound so clean and huge? How did you manage to get that huge of a guitar tone? It's, I don't know. It's uh, his uh, thick strings and playing well on, on the guitars together with amps and uh, a lot of C4 multiband compress- compression, I think. That's that's the thing that makes it sound good. And, um, I mean, you'll basically be showing them on the live mix yeah yeah how, how you do your low end I, I have like four identical questions here about mm. how do you get your look your low end so massive yet so clear on your mix like wondering do you boost the subs with a multi-band on the master or do you add like max bass on the master or is it no in uh, the individual tracks Never really used any like sub harmonic stuff, so it's more it's uh, more like C4 doing some stuff. I don't know. I I, I don't really know uh, any other way to do it. So <laughs> I can only make it sound like like I I do. So I don't know how you do it differently. <laughs> I'm very very curious to see because seriously, I've got all these questions about it also I, i could say like the on the evh the the low um equalizer is always like on full to to record it with a lot of bass and um i mean the tuning is also like what is it f sharp or something on some of the songs so it's pretty pretty damn low god that's low Yeah. So you record with a ton of low end and then control it. Yeah. After we always used um, Uray LA twenty two, so all the the four guitar mics go into that one and do some compressing away some of the low shitty sounding stuff like the stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it broke somewhere between the two albums, so. It works with a C4 to to do it, I think. Yeah, so we haven't got ourselves a new unit. I know a lot of guys who record with too much high end Mm -hmm. because they want to then carve it afterwards. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit too much low end in this case, and like I have to boost some some high end on the guitars and try to control the the low end. 
with a ton of C4. That makes sense. Or it's like one instance on the guitar master, and then there's a extra one on the master bus, and then probably use one more in the mastering chain, just a little bit. So you're using multiple stages of multiband compression. Yeah. Okay, I see. What about on the bass on there as well? Uh, no, it's nothing. Nothing like that on the bass. It's most of the time it's just a DI signal with a Sunsamp Protos own Sunsamp plugin and um, yeah, just some EQing and compression. Do you split your bass into two? No, I'm gonna look into it. Actually, I, I heard some of your other podcasts and uh, I, I knew knew about it uh, the technique for a long time, but uh, never really gone for that approach so far but uh, i will one day i love it and i hate it sometimes i really hate it i hate it sometimes because it's hard to get sometimes to get the low and the high to sound like one instrument Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah sometimes it's just a lot easier for me to kind of not separate it into low and high but to separate it into dirty and clean Mm -hmm. and get the blend that way you probably talked talked about it uh, a lot of uh, a lot in the show already, but what is it you do? You like high pass filter out like three hundred hertz. Well, so there's one that's like low passed at like a hundred mm-hmm. or hundred and fifty, and then one that's like three hundred and up or yeah. four hundred and up, depending. And the one that's high usually gets like some distortion. Yeah. And the one that's low just gets limited to shit, uh-huh. <laughs> so that it's just like so that it's just like a block of low end. Okay. And then they just get blended together, yeah. so they sound like one instrument. I mean, Joey, does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. And you can. Is there anything else to it? I mean, there's ways to make. You know, I like to, for example, in the you know the top end, you might put some distortion or something, but then. Once you've put them together into a bus, I mean, a little bit of compression, a little bit of even more distortion on there sometimes can like make it blend together a little more. I feel like just processing the two signals in any sort of way, like even if it's just compression, it starts to like weld it together, if that makes sense. Yeah, I will for sure look into it because that's always been like the hardest thing for me to, to mix is the bass always struggle with uh, with it and like on the latest Ar- Architects album I think Al used uh, a Dingwall bass for, for some of the songs and uh, at the time when we, we decided what to record on I think I decided for another bass that I thought sounded better but then <laughs> in the mix the Dingwall was much better. <laughs> so I was like, oh, we should have done all the album with this bass, but... That sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Your original instinct was the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Usually, if I find that I'm usually right the first time. All right, in this case, I was totally wrong the whole time. Because <laughs> I voted for the other bass. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, still sounds great though. Yeah, thanks. So, Henrik, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very it's been much. Great talking to you, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks 
in Florida. Yeah, me too. To do Nail the Mix with Architects. Thanks for ha- having me. Yeah. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Roadbox, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com.